Well, I hope that's the prayer of your heart, that you would have God glorify His name through you as you live for Him and honor His name in your own life. You may not know this, but on this final Sunday of the calendar year, we started the year on a Sunday as well. January 1st was a Sunday. We were in the Gospel of Luke, and on this final Sunday, we are going to be in the Gospel of Luke. How gracious is our God. I want us to open to chapter 11 this morning, and I want to focus our attention on verses 37 through 44. Luke chapter 11, verses 37 to 44. It's a fascinating text, and it's very pointed. It is very direct in its message. And mercifully, it is corrective for the listening sinful heart. I asked my wife a question this week. I'll ask it to us this morning, and the question is simply this. What is the first thing that must happen for someone to either be saved, or to mature in Christianity if they are saved? What is the first thing that must happen? The answer to that question is, I think, simple and profound in this sense. It is simple because the answer to that is just this. You must first recognize you have a need You must first recognize you have a need. In other words, in order to be saved, you have to recognize you have a need for a Savior, right? You you are sinful. You, You cannot do it on your own. You have to recognize that you are someone who needs help. And if you want to mature in your Christianity as a believer, then you better have that as a constant reality of your heart. Someone who understands that I need help. I have not arrived. I cannot arrive on my own. I need help. Every time we open the Scriptures, we ought to be asking God to open our minds and our hearts to that reality. God, I need your help. I can't do this on my own. I cannot live this way on my own. How can I accomplish what you're telling me and commanding of me without you? I need your help. Mercifully, this text is corrective if we are listening. If you're not there already, Luke chapter 11. And I want to just begin our time once again by bowing before the Lord in prayer. Father, we need you. We understand, Lord, that your Spirit dwells in us who believe. And yet we also are patently aware of the reality that in the flesh here, we fight a battle every day. And oftentimes we forget that we're in a battle. We succumb to the things of the flesh 
and even begin to define the things of the flesh as spiritual maturity or as growth when in fact it isn't that at all. And Lord, we need your help. So this morning I pray that we would open our eyes, that you would give us a fresh look at our own hearts, the ways in which we walk according to what we believe, and challenge us and encourage us and exhort, exhort us and cause the words of your word to impact us so that we're not the same this next year as we were this year. But that for your glory and because of your mercy and grace, we grow in Christ-likeness. And for those among us who do not know Jesus Christ, from the young to the old here, Lord, I pray a new day. A day where eyes would be opened, that they would hear the truth of the gospel. See their sin for what it is in affront against you and your holiness. Turn from it. Embrace the Savior. So that you would be praised to the utmost by all people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Remember the guy named Theophilus? That friend of Luke's first named back in chapter 1? The friend to whom Luke actually is writing and recording all of this information about Jesus Christ. And he's writing so that Theophilus, and by virtue of that, so all of us would have a certainty about what we have heard about Jesus. And there is much that Theophilus and us have heard and learned already from the words of Luke. Last year, or at the beginning of this year, on chapter, or in the first Sunday of the year, I think we were somewhere back in chapter 4, maybe. We've learned a lot, and of course we know that while these are the words of Luke, they are actually the words of God. Because... Each Scripture writer is carried along by the Holy Spirit since all of Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for every person, each one of us. We know it is profitable to the pagan unbeliever. Why? Because the Scriptures say, repent of your sin and believe upon Jesus Christ and you will see and have the forgiveness of your sins so that you might now have eternal life and not eternal judgment. That's what the Scriptures say to the unbeliever. The unbelieving world would like to use the Scriptures as some kind of moral justification book whereby they can define it as they want and, and thereby attach it to their life and somehow in their own religious state think that they're okay with God. But the Bible only says one thing to an unbeliever, repent and believe. 
And to each and every believer, the Scriptures say, love the Lord your God with your whole heart, your whole soul, your whole mind, and your, all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. In other words, live with your mind and thereby your very actions controlled by the reality that you are in a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that reality for both is simply to say this, that there is no place for religion with Jesus. It's interesting that all over the world, and especially here in the West, we are very religious. In fact, the Apostle Paul, you remember when he stepped into Athens in Acts chapter 17, this is the very thing that he noticed about the people. He said in Acts chapter 17, verse 22, it's recorded for us, men of Athens, I observe that you are a very religious in all respects. Very religious people. In other words, life was filled with religion and it was manifested most visibly by all of the objects of worship that they had. Well, it seems to me that nothing has really changed in our day. We see religion all over the world. People who both overtly and openly worship and venerate any number of icons and objects doesn't matter if it's Hinduism or Buddhism or shamanism in the jungles of many countries or Mormonism or Catholicism or even Judaism. Some even who call Christianity but really isn't Christianity. All of them are filled with objects of worship. And while it's easy to see that in many religions that I've mentioned, it gets more subtle when it's religion that's actually in the heart. Theophilus would have been well acquainted with religion in his day. All of the disciples would have known what religion looked like because that's what they grew up doing. They grew up being taught that a relationship with God is by external worship, works, effort. They were religious. And I, I mentioned it last Lord's Day that some of the most difficult individuals to reach with the gospel are those who are religious. Particularly those who, whose religion is really deep-seated in the heart because they are already satisfied in what they do and who they are. They don't ever or rarely if ever look in the mirror and say, I need something. I need help. The truth of Jesus seems to always just bounce off the heart that refuses to acknowledge its own sinful condition. And that's one of the facts about this text and many others that is so intriguing to me. It is how Jesus deals with the religious. 
<laughs> I think sometimes we get the idea, don't we? We get the idea that Jesus was just continually soft, continually non-direct. He was a person that when he spoke to the, the religious unbelievers, he just came across with this soft, genteel voice. I find it kind of interesting as I read the Scriptures that oftentimes that is not the case. In fact, he reserved his most direct words for those who were of the religious community. You would think that Jesus would have just loved the religious community. I mean, these were people who were God followers. These were people who said they had a relationship with God. You would think that Jesus coming to earth would have had a great time just hanging out and talking theology with them, but with them he had the most direct words. And I believe the text reveals to us this in, in spades, really. And what we need to see in it is the heart attitude of the religious. The heart attitude of the religious. So, so we can, as we're looking at this, protect our own selves from, from that in our own heart. Having this religion in the heart. I say that because evangelicalism is filled with religious people. In fact, it is clear that that is the case because of the stunning words of Jesus Christ back in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. We know that evangelicalism is filled with those of religion. Their, their, their heart is filled with all kinds of religion, even though they would never say that to themselves or address themselves in that way. And yet in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is addressing this, this whole idea, at, and at one point he addresses the reality of the wide road and the narrow way. Says the wide path is that which leads to destruction. The narrow way is the way of salvation. And there are few on that. The wide path leads to destruction. Jesus says, you will know them by their fruit. You'll know them by their fruit. Matthew 7, verse 16. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but, he, or, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire so then you know you will know them by their fruit. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, Jesus says, not everybody who says to me that will enter the kingdom of heaven, verse 21. 
Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Jesus said, but I'll say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, this is religious people. Religious people show a kind of worship, an outworking of a, 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 an idea that they have a, a relationship with Jesus Christ, a relationship with God Himself. It's a kind of worship in doing and venerating all kinds of things. But it's not the real Jesus. And that's what we find here in Luke chapter 11. Religious people showing a kind of outward worship and finding fault with the Savior Himself. Follow along as I read this text for us, and then we'll just unfold it together. Verse 37, Now when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisees saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. Luke reminds us here that this took place after Jesus had given the illustration about rejecting the light of the gospel. Remember the most religious of the day had been rejecting the light of the gospel that Jesus was showing. In fact, they had gone so far as to say that Jesus was doing his miracles by the chief of demons, or Satan himself. In other words, that he wasn't God at all. He was actually from Satan. It was a, a heinous blasphemy that they had spoken about Jesus Christ. And here is a Pharisee who wants to now sit down with Jesus. Now we have to understand something about Pharisees. To put them in a category today, you would need to identify them as a religious fundamentalist. What do I mean by that? I just mean legalists by practice. Legalism, remember, doesn't mean following the commands of Scripture. That's a heresy that's even out in the world today and even evangelicalism today. 
that tries to say that if you command anyone from Scripture as Scripture commands it, if we we're required to do anything, then we have made it a work of our salvation, and therefore that can't be because it's all of grace, and you get this hyper-grace view of all kinds of things, and so people live however they want and still claim Jesus Christ. Now that's not legalism, that's foolishness. Legalism says I, if I do the things of the Scripture, then I'm righteous then I have earned my justification. That's legalism. If legalism is the other thing, just by way of commanding something from Scripture and thereby you have to do it, then Jesus Christ himself was a legalist. And we know that's not the case. Legalists by practice, they're religious legalists, meaning that they tied holiness and justification before God to doing things. In other words, it was a Christianity defined by religious activity. And in Judaism, the Pharisee was at the top of the heap. You have to keep in mind, these weren't priests. They're not the priests. They're not the Sadducees who were the, the religious lawyers, the experts in the law. And you'll notice in verse 45, a lawyer who happened to be there at that lunch as well is understanding what Jesus is saying by what he says in the verses that we're looking at this morning because he gets insulted by it. So these are the fundamentalists who became very popular in the community and influential among the people. That's who they were. And so Luke says that after Jesus had told the people of whom many Pharisees were in the crowd that they don't have a light problem, they have a sight problem. Jesus says, listen, you don't need more light. I've given you all the light you ever need. You have the gospel light. That's plenty enough. You don't need more of that. What you need to do is realize you have a sight problem. But you're unwilling to say, I have a need. You're unwilling to say, I need something. And one of them, in his arrogance, Invites Jesus over for a meal. Verse 37, when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him. And he went in and reclined at the table. This is most likely the meal around what you might call, as the text says, at least in the New American Standard, lunch. Right? It's the second meal of the day. It would be a bigger meal. And so the need was there to recline, as they did in the ancient Near East, at a at a lower uh, table as they, we have it in our text. It really was more probably on the ground. They reclined there and there was probably a carpet down and they would stay there for an extended time interacting with one another. And so Jesus accepts the invitation and he wouldn't have been the only one who was there. Obviously one of the lawyers who was there, we'll see later in, in probably next Lord's Day what he did. So he's not the only one going there, but this is the lunch, and the Pharisee would have wanted certainly other Pharisee friends of his to be there as well. Hey, I'm having Jesus over for lunch. Why don't you come too? And he certainly would have had some lawyers there. But Jesus isn't surprised at this. Jesus knows the heart of men. Jesus knows exactly what's going on with them, and Jesus knows what it is that this man and the others worship. He knows it's not them that they worship. He knows that they don't have a heart for God, even though they say they have a relationship with God. They worship themselves. They worship what they do. 
And so it is to that that Jesus points. Jesus comes in, reclines, and seemingly the first words out of his mouth are direct, and we might even say insulting, although we know it's not an insult. You notice that Jesus reclines. The implication is that he reclines, like I said, right as he comes in. I mean, he comes, he sits down, he reclines, and he does that intentionally. Why? Because Jesus mercifully desires to expose this man's sin. Why? Because until any person see and turn from their sin, they cannot be saved. He needs to recognize his need. And we need to make no mistake about it. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And therefore, anything that is contrary to the truth of Jesus is from the pit of hell. Period. And if anyone knew that, Jesus certainly knew that, and he certainly knows the damning results of that if it's embraced. And so Jesus confronts it head on. Why? Because with Jesus, there's no place for religion. No place for religion with Jesus. And Jesus exposes the religious heart in this text in several ways. And I want to just give them to us as we go along. He's exposing the religious heart. So here is Jesus about to have lunch with this Pharisee and his friends. And right out of the gate, Jesus begins to directly expose their hearts. Notice verse 38. When the Pharisee saw it, saw what? Saw Jesus come in and immediately go and recline at the table. When he saw it, He was surprised that he, that is Jesus, had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. This is not your mom telling you young people to wash your hands before you eat. Certainly you were outside probably playing in the dirt, picking your nose and doing all kinds of things like that. And your mom just wants you to not put that in your mouth. So she says, go clean your hands. That's not what this is. This was the religious ritual that you would go through if you were a religious person. At least according to the Pharisees. What Jesus had done intentionally was violate their code. He violated their code. He could... How could Jesus, in the mind of the Pharisee, how could he be from God if he lived as they saw that he did? He didn't follow the code of purification before a meal. Now, that ought to say something to us about the heart of the religious. This is number one. The heart of the religious distorts the truth for its own ends. The heart of the religious distorts the truth for its own ends. This is what the Pharisees were. They were those who knew the truth of the Old Testament, but distorted it by addition and subtraction. In other words, they they made the law fit them rather 
than them keeping what God had said from a pure heart of worship to God. They took what God had said and made it fit their life. How they lived, how they wanted to live, how they desired to live. It was an act of modifying what God had said to them. This is always the heart of the religious. They make the outflow of worship in the heart of one who loves God because God has first loved them in Jesus Christ. They make that. They take that. They take the outflow that it ought to be. And they take the expression of worship and make it an act that must be done for one to be righteous before God. Instead of it being an act of worship to God, it's the outflow of one who loves God and because they love God that says all about God's righteousness and nothing about them except that they were sinful and needed God, they make it the reality that what they do now makes them right before God. Same act seen in a totally different way. Jesus knew the heart of that. And so Jesus just sits down. To expose it. And certainly that is what happened because the Pharisee is surprised that Jesus wouldn't do what they said you should do. Did the Pharisee express his surprise in some kind of way that Jesus would have seen it? Luke doesn't tell us that. He only says that Jesus responds to it. Which tells us another thing about Jesus, doesn't it? Although I don't think Luke is specifically tying that in to the reality of, hey, Theophilus, you need to know this about Jesus, that he's omniscient. He said that throughout the whole time, up to even chapter 11 in different ways, but here's another one. Jesus knows this man because Jesus responds to it and the man's actions or Jesus' actions speak with no uncertain voice about religion. The heart of religion always distorts the truth for its own ends. Now, we can't forget as we're looking at this that these were very moral people. Sometimes we think, oh, okay, well, yeah, but they're good people. I mean, can't they be right with God if they're just good people? I mean, we see that in our world, right? People say, well, he had a good heart. These people would have been habitual about their Old Testament studies. They knew their Bibles. They would have practiced every duty to the T. The Apostle Paul himself even said, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. To the law, I was blameless. I mean, I was at the top of the heap. I did it better than anybody. They never would have missed a feast time. Never would have missed prayer. They were seen as the examples to be like. And I guess that is what makes this so shocking. Many a church of the day, they would have been the ones who people would have looked up to. These were the Matthew 7 people. 
And Jesus says to them, notice verse 39 through 41, the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees, remember the man is just surprised, doesn't necessarily, the text doesn't tell us that he said anything to Jesus, like, hey, why aren't you washing your hands? He's just surprised at that. Jesus knows what's going on. So Jesus says to him, now you Pharisees, you, you clean the outside of the cup and the platter. Pharisees probably go, ah, oh, yes, yes, you noticed that. But the inside of you, you're full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. You see, number one, the heart of the religious always takes the truth and distorts it for its own ends, and therefore, number two, the heart of the religious judges by the externals. That's how they make their judgments. This is the essence of every heart that lives by religion. It always judges those around them that their spiritual condition must be somehow not right because they look at the externals. Why? Because the heart of the religious refused to look at the truth about sin. In other words, it refuses to acknowledge personal sin. And because it refuses to say, I have a need, therefore it refuses to acknowledge that both are inseparably linked. Personal sin drives the externals. The inside drives the outside. Notice what Jesus says. Verse 39. Inside of you are full of robbery and wickedness. You clean the outside, but inside of you, you are all concerned with the externals. You think that in the externals is life. You think that in the externals is that that makes you clean. You're all concerned with the outside. But you've distorted the truth so much that you actually believe that if the outside is clean, then the object itself is clean. I was thinking about this. The reality is that if the inside isn't clean, it doesn't matter how much you clean the outside, the dish is unusable, isn't it? I get up nearly every morning and I go to the cupboard at our home and I pull a bowl out of the cupboard so that I can have something to eat. And I always look at the inside of the bowl. Why? Because if the inside's dirty, I really don't care how clean the outside is. But if the outside's dirty and the inside is clean, guess what? I still use the bowl. Because I don't care if the outside's dirty. It's the inside that I'm using. In other words, the outside is irrelevant if the inside is dirty. It's the same way with the heart, beloved. The religious only pay attention to the outside. To the externals. And so Jesus says to them, you're full of robbery and wickedness, you foolish ones. 
Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? In other words, to think that by means of the externals you're okay with God, that's just absolute foolishness. That's as foolish as eating your food on a dirty plate because you clean the outside. It's foolishness. You need to see your hypocrisy. You need to understand that the outside and inside are inextricably linked. The same one who made the outside made the inside. What foolishness. If you refuse to see the foolishness in your own heart, you will never come to see the truth of Christ. Why? Because your religious hypocrisy blinds you to that truth. If you think by your activities and by your doings that you are clean, you need to realize that you're only dealing with the outside and it's the inside that's the problem. You're just putting on an earthly show. It has no heavenly impact, though. It's just an earthly show. You know what Jesus is saying? He says, if you live that way, you're still on the wide road. You are so foolish, you think that some ceremony makes you righteous. But your heart is full of taking from others. He says you're full of robbery and wickedness. The word robbery there really is the idea of rape. You take by force. You, you steal and you're just filled with badness. I heard one pastor say, you're just bad to the bone." Kind of how we say it. There's no other way to describe those who practice faith this way except as fools. That's what Jesus said. You're foolish. Jesus says, look, give that which is within as charity, verse 41. And then all things are clean for you. You know what he's saying? Listen, you deal with the inside, you won't ever have to worry about the outside. It'll take care of itself. Jesus isn't talking about food. He's not talking about that which is put into the dish as if they should give the food away as charity to others and then it would be good. Nobody's talking about. No, Jesus had already equated what he was saying with what's inside of them. Inside of you, he says. Jesus is saying... That true righteousness comes from a righteous heart. It is the worship of God from a pure heart. The externals are nothing without the pure inside. That which comes from the heart is pure, then all is pure. So what Jesus is demanding here and what he's very direct at saying to these religious men is just this, you need a new heart. The inside of you. The inside of you. In other words, inside of you is robbery, gay. It's, it's rape, take by force. You just take by force. 
You're full of wickedness and what needs to be rather love and giving in you. Not taking. What flows out of the regenerate, unregenerate heart is that, but what flows out of the regenerate heart is love that is worship for the exaltation of God. Not the exaltation of self. Next time you go to lunch with somebody who's not saved and they start judging you, maybe you should start this way. Hey, listen, let me just say something. <laughs> you think the outside is what's the matter, but the inside is the issue. You're filled with a bunch of garbage. Well, thanks for coming over. <laughs> These are strong words. These are strong words. Why? Well, I think number three, the heart of religion is self-deceived. It's self-deceived. Notice verse 42, but woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you. Now that's like, you know, you better watch out. This is the strongest, this is a judgment, really. You pay tithe and mint, uh, of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet you would disregard justice and the love of God. These are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. The next three statements in this, this very text from the mouth of Jesus are declarations about them and everyone like them. Woe to you. That's a judgment. The judgment, you better watch out. You better watch out because while you believe you're fine, you believe you're okay because you carry out this activity born in your heart, you are self-deceived. Woe to you. Oh, you're, you're a stickler when it comes to that which is easy for you to do. You tithe the smallest amount of the garden herbs that are out there because God says you ought to tithe the tenth of whatever you have. You take the rule of God from the Old Testament as if it's law in your own heart and you give just that amount, only that amount, because it's easy for you to do. You strain yourself at that which is easy to practice. Why? So that others will see you. But actually, the actual disciplines for godliness, you just pass by as if they don't exist at all. You pay the tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet you completely disregard, as if it doesn't even exist, justice and the love of God. Why? Because that's hard to do. That's going to cause you to have to sacrifice yourself. And therefore, when others look at you, and when you look at others, you, your judgment of them is wrong because why you judge by that? Well, they're not as godly as me, like the Pharisee and the publican. And he's praying in the temple, and he said, I'm glad I'm not like this publican here. All the while, you live hypocritically yourself. Oh, you give the little bit so that others might know, oh, I'm a giver, and yet you disregard what is hard for you to do. You strain at the minutia and ignore that which actually drives all of that, the love for God and justice for others. 
The righteous justice of God and the outworking of love for others, that, that really drives a heart that is a giving heart, a heart that gives for the right reasons. But Jesus says, that's not you. You should be doing the second because it's that which actually drives the first. You see, you should be, you should be spending your time practicing the God-honoring justice that is my heart, God says, and the love for Him, and, and yet don't disregard the other things because they're the outflow. That isn't what you do. That's not what the religious do. The religious strain at the externals and disregard that which is needed on the inside. And so they go about judging others by the way they view righteousness. And so the heart of the religious distort the truth for its own ends. Two, they judge by the externals. Three, they're self-deceived. Number four, the heart of the religious love prominence. They love prominence. Verse 43, Woe to you Pharisees, again a judgment, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues, and the respectful greetings in the marketplace. From their ungodly self-deception, Jesus turns to their pride. The desire for recognized prominence. Beloved, mark this, those driven by religion seek prominence. Those driven by religion seek prominence. They love the place of greatest visibility. You ever been to a church that has chairs on the stage? Where the elders sit or the pastor or whoever sits on the stage? That, that's the idea here. They want to be seen. They want to be seen. Greatest visibility. Jesus says, you love to be called respectful names in the marketplace. Hey, rabbi. Hey, hey, teacher. You want people to know that you are somebody, that you have achieved something, that you got somewhere, that you have arrived. Label me. Put a label on me. Why? Because I'm somebody. Hey, look at me. Don't forget. I am of whatever you want to fill the blank in. This is the expression of the religious heart. Not only does it pervert the Word of God, but it desires that others recognize them with the highest of titles. Woe to you, Jesus says. You distort the truth. You judge by externals. You're self-deceived. You love prominence. And he says, lastly, woe to you. Probably the most crushing of all. Woe to you because you are damningly dangerous. The heart of the religious, in their life, they are damningly dangerous. Notice verse 44. Woe to you. Notice Luke doesn't include the word Pharisee here. What are you Pharisees? What are you Pharisees? In verse 44, woe to you. 
I think the others at lunch could have said, yeah, yeah, you Pharisees, come on. And yet here is Jesus now saying, all of you, woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs. The people who walk over them are unaware of it. From what the Pharisees pretended to be, from what the religious heart pretends to be, Jesus exposes what they actually are. They desire honor. And what they should be getting is avoidance, not honor at all. Rather than getting praise from people, they should be getting avoided by people. Why? Because anyone who follows their way is going to be eternally defiled. The Jews would whitewash the tombs before the Passover. Why? So that the travelers who were coming from distant countries, as they were traveling, they wouldn't become inadvertently defiled by walking over and touching the tombs. Why? Because in the Old Testament, Levit- or Numbers 19, verse 11 and following, Leviticus 21, verse 1 and following, there was the reality that if you touched a dead body or things associated with the dead body where a dead body was, you were going to become ceremonially defiled. You would have to go through an entire purification process. And so in order to avoid that, they'd whitewash all the tombs. To touch a dead body or a tomb was to be contaminated by it, defiled. So they wanted to whitewash him to avoid it. And Jesus says to the religious, you're like a tomb that's not whitewashed. You're concealed, hidden. In other words, you defile all who you touch. And I would say it's even worse. You're not only defiling those who you touch, you appear as if you're clean, and you're not. In other words, the people are unaware of your corruption. When they follow you, they are twice the sons of hell. They really? Yeah, go to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23 for a minute. Talk about an indictment. Jesus pronounces this kind of indictment upon the scribes and the Pharisees as he's about to ascend to glory. Woe to you, scribes, verse 13 of Pharisees, you hypocrites. Why? Because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you... Do not enter it yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. You're you're like a blockade who appears as if you're righteous, and yet you're not. You block people from even going to what could save them. Woe to you, verse 14, scribes, you Pharisees, hypocrites. Why? Because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. You go in and you you take what is you shouldn't take. You're filled with robbery. You take from widows who, who need help rather than giving help to them and doing justice for them. You rob them. And you make long prayers so the people will see you and go, oh, gee, look how righteous you are. 
you're going to receive a greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on the sea and land, and you make one proselyte from here, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Oh, you go on your missionary adventures claiming you're doing great things and you you go out there as if someone ought to follow you and you infiltrate all kinds of lands and all kinds of places and yet you are just making people go to hell. Why? Because you're a blind guide, verse 16. You say, whoever swears by the temple, that's nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. In other words, you make a vow to the church, you better live it up or you're going to hell what they're saying. You fools, he says. Blind men. You're blind men. Which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Woe to you, verse 23, you scribes, you Pharisees, you hypocrites, you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law like justice, mercy, faithfulness. You're blind guides. You strain in a gnat and swallow a camel. You clean the outside, verse 26, outside of the cup and the dish, so the outside of it may become clean, or clean the inside. First clean the inside, so the outside will become clean also. You're just hypocrites. Whitewashed tombs on the outside, you appear beautiful, but inside you're full of dead men's bones, all in cleanness. Outwardly appearance of righteousness to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus just pronounced judgment upon them. That's what the heart of external religion does, beloved deceives and defiles all who hold to it. So it's imperative that our thoughts and our desires and our actions be rooted not in externals, not in, hey, look at me, but in the internals. Our actions be rooted by faith in our Savior Jesus Christ. In other words, what we do isn't in, in order that others might see us and say, hey, look at me but so that Jesus Christ would say us and say, good, well done, good and faithful servant. See, if, you, if we are a believer, then the change in our lives was brought about by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit washed the inside of the dish. And now we live for Him. Why? Because of His righteousness. So the outside of the dish becomes clean also. Not to gain righteousness, not to gain position, but because we are in relationship with Jesus Christ. Now we live because of that relationship with our Savior. Not religion to reach our Savior. If you don't have faith in Jesus Christ, well, don't try external reforms. Not going to help. 
They'll never produce the righteousness that is acceptable to God. This is what frightens me about the programs and, and religious practices of the modern day morality movement in our world. Movements of AA and these movements that clean up your life. Great, clean up your life. Good, don't take poison into your life which will destroy your body. But listen, just because you went through that and, and, and now you don't drink anymore, that's wonderful. Your, your life will get more healthy, but you'll still go to hell as a healthy person. External reformation doesn't save you. It never can. It never will. You need a heart change. And that only comes by recognizing your sinfulness before God, turning from it by faith in Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can make you clean. There's no place for religion with Jesus. <laughs> well, the people at lunch probably put their pita chips down. Tzatziki dip, whatever it was. The lawyer said, wait a minute. Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. <laughs> you insulted them, teacher. We were kind of enjoying that, but now you're insulting us too. I, sometimes I wish the Bible just said, Jesus said, I was hoping so. Well, let's pray. Father, I hope we've been insulted in one way. I hope our, our hearts in any sinful way that be in us have been assaulted by your truth. I hope if there be any religious ways in us subtly that we somehow have held to in ourselves that we would recognize that before you. And that we would see there's no place for religion with you. And that by that we would recognize our need to turn from any kind of sinfulness whereby we are relying on the externals that we live for you to your glory, to your honor. Pay attention to the inside. The outside will take care of itself. Lord, help us to be like Christ. Lord, help us to be careful in how we approach one another and others who do not know Christ. Help us not be those who are arrogant. We know there is no arrogance in you. But help us to gently, calmly, humbly submit ourselves to your word and help others to see their own sinfulness before you. And with compassion, let's walk together so that you would be glorified in and through us as we express love toward one another. Thank you for your mercy upon us. Thank you for loving us in Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.